0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it. Lord, we thank you that as we read the scriptures that you speak to us and we hear your voice. And Lord, we know that sometimes when we read uh, your word, uh, it says things that are hard to hear, but Lord, we know that your word speaks the truth and it tells us what we need to hear. So help us to understand it and apply it to our lives and to our church tonight. Amen. Uh, So Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 12. Uh, Have a read with me. Uh, This is Jesus speaking. He says, "Uh, What do you think, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church... Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two or of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered him, I tell you, not even seven times, but 77 times. It would be great if you can have that open. Uh, What we do uh, here at Night Church is... uh, Uh, I open up the scriptures and we'll have a look at this passage for the next 20 minutes or so Uh, then we'll sing and then uh, Tess is going to pray in response to God's word and then I'll get up and answer some questions so if any time during the sermon you've got a question that you want to ask write it down and there'll be a chance for Q&A a a little bit later question time is always fun times Um, but uh, let's have a look at what God's word has to say here in Matthew chapter 18 Uh, A lot of people uh, at at Sydney Hill will know that I grew up in Sydney Uh, and if you have visited Sydney, one of the first things you'll realise as you exit the airport is that there are a lot of cars on the road and they move very fast. Uh, But one of the things that makes life uh, driving around in Sydney very difficult is uh, there's lots of freeways and you always need to make sure that you're in the right lane. Uh, If you wander into the wrong lane, you can get lost very easily. Uh, This beauty up here is called the Warringah Freeway. You can see the Harbour Bridge in the background. It's on the approach to the Sydney Harbour Bridge from the north, where I used to live. Uh, And so when you're going down Warringah Freeway, you're going down at 80 kilometres an hour, there's bumper-to-bumper cars, and you have 11 lanes to choose from. And if you make a bad choice, if you wander into the wrong lane, if uh, if you just aren't paying attention for 30 seconds... Uh, You could very easily end up in a tunnel or on a bridge or on another freeway heading in a vastly different direction and it could be many, many, many kilometres before you have an opportunity to turn around. Uh, A friend of mine uh, named Ed, he was visiting from the UK, Uh, he he just popped out in the car to run an errand. He was literally just going a a couple of kilometres around the corner uh, but he ended up on this freeway by accident and 45 minutes and $15 worth of tolls later he was back to where he started. I know a bride who was an hour late to a wedding because the driver, uh, he thought he was going in the harbour tunnel and ended up on the harbour bridge uh, and uh, she was an hour late and the groom was stressed out of his brain. Wandering off, wandering off in Sydney can be costly. It can cost you your time, it can cost you your your money. Uh, If you're a bloke, it can cost you your pride. Um, It might even cost you your wedding day. And so it's much better to know which lane is right and to stick to your lane, to not wander from your lane Uh, But if that's just driving around in Sydney, how much more so following Jesus? Uh, Last week we saw Jesus' heart for his people, his flock. We saw, as we just read, that Jesus doesn't want any of his sheep, any of his flock to wander off. Because wandering is costly and it's risky, it has eternal consequences. What did it say there Uh, in verse 14? In the same way your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. That's what happens when Jesus' flock wander away from him. Which is why we have these verses here in our 15 to 20, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight. These are Jesus' words to us so that no one wanders off. So no one wanders off and is perished, uh, perishes or is lost forever. Now uh, what we do here at Cedona Hill, uh, if you're new, uh, is uh, we do most of our Bible teaching through uh, working our way through the book of the Bible. And we're working our way through Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew's biography of Jesus. Uh, And we're working our way in this first term through uh, chapter 18, 19 and 20. Uh, And this is the passage that we're up to this week. Uh, And in this series we uh, we, we see in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus is bringing a kingdom, but the kingdom that he's bringing is a counter-kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's a kingdom where the least will be the greatest and the greatest will be the least. And today's passage, Jesus is telling us how to rescue those who wander from his kingdom. It's teaching us how we can be a loving community that takes sin seriously so that no one is lost. He wants his kingdom, his church, to be a loving community that takes sin seriously so that no one is lost. Uh, And to be honest, uh, this passage is talking about a thing that uh, a lot of people call church discipline. Uh, and preaching on church discipline isn't exactly the sort of thing that's going to fill the pews and energize the congregation. As I think about it, you know, we've got lots of visitors tonight. People who have moved into town for uni or for new jobs, and it's not the, the passage I would have chosen to kind of, you know, really excite you about what it is to be part of City on a Hill going forward. Hey, we do church discipline. Get excited about that. Come join our church. But we believe that God's word is relevant for all of us, all of the time, and this is the part that we're up to. And so we're going to read it, we're going to hear what God has to say, and we're going to put it into practice, like we do every week. And I'm actually convinced that when God speaks to us through his word, when he transforms us through his word, it's good for us. And even though we might not feel like this passage is going to fill the pews and energise the congregation, I'm convinced that if we follow what God's word says here, he will fill the pews he'll fill it with those who have wandered off who have been brought back lovingly restored to his heavenly kingdom and if we do follow what god's word says here we will be energized to love and care for one another even though it's awkward to love and care for one another so that we all make it to his eternal kingdom cuz just like this this passage is awkward isn't it speaking to someone about sin in their life uh, where someone is living contrary to what God's word says and what God wishes speaking to them about that is something that we find really difficult and really awkward it's hard to do relationally if you're anything like me you want people to like you and telling someone their growth areas isn't exactly a great way to make friends and it's, it's, it's hard to do relationally it's also hard to do personally because if you're anything like me, you know that your life is kind of racked with sin as well. There are many areas that you need to grow in. There are many areas where you need to uh, stop doing something that is offensive to God and his people. And so we're aware of our own sin and we don't want to come across as a hypocrite, as someone who's got it all together, because we know we don't. And so what we often do in Christian circles is we come up with some sort of spiritual truce. Uh, this unspoken spiritual truth that takes place where it's like, I won't mention your thing if you don't mention my thing. But this topic, it's, it's awkward and it's challenging and a lot of us have seen church discipline done in horrific ways, done without love, uh, done without seeking to save, but more out of, a, out of a desire to punish. But despite all the awkwardness, Jesus gives us these loving uh, and compassionate ways to deal with sin to take sin seriously so that no one is lost. So that we all make it to the end. So we would do well to listen. Because Jesus is painting a picture of a church that loves one another and does it by talking about difficult things so that we all make it to the end. And to be honest, this is the sort of church I actually want to be a part of. I really want to be a part of a church that makes sure no one is lost. That makes sure that we all make it to the end. Now, the context of this passage, what goes before it and after it, is vital for us to understand what Jesus is saying here. Uh, from the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus has been uh, on a crusade where he's been demolishing pride. At uh, the beginning of chapter 18, uh, he said that uh, Christians, those who seek to f- be his followers, they're, they're to be like little children. They're to be lowly ones. They're to be humble and they're to welcome and care for other lowly ones. And then immediately after this passage, what was the question that Peter asked? Well, he said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? You see, after this passage, Jesus is going to then go on and answer that question and tell a whole parable that's all about forgiveness, kind of this unending forgiveness. And so chapter 18 begins with humility and it ends with forgiveness, and sandwiched in between is how we deal with sin in the church. And it's no accident, I think, that it's sandwiched in there. You see, dealing with sin in the church, it must be in the context of humility and forgiveness. It must be done by those who see themselves as little ones, those who see themselves as small in God's kingdom, and it must be done by those who are willing to forgive. And the section that we're looking at, uh, between humility and forgiveness, the section in verses 15 to 20, it divides into two. First, there is a process in verses 15 to 17, and then 18 to 20, uh, Jesus gives us the theological reason, the justification for why this should be done. So beginning uh, verses 15 to 17, here we see um, that the process, which is that sin in the church, is to be an expression of Christian love. It's to be an expression of our love for each other. And how we deal with it is an expression of love as well. Uh, the first step in the process uh, is uh, for it to begin directly and privately. Uh, so imagine the situation. Uh, someone has, has a brother or sister who you love and you want to love and make sure they don't wander. They have sinned. And so what do you do? will you firstly approach them directly and privately? It's to be personal and confidential. Have a look at verse 15. Verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. Now, we've got so many different mediums of communication. I think I I got a message from someone this week. And I had like, checked my email, I checked my messages on my phone, I checked my WhatsApp, I checked my Facebook messages. I went and checked the letterbox. I just couldn't find where I got this message from this person. Uh, you, you could do all of these things. Uh, but Jesus says, go to them. Go and talk to them. The first step of this conversation is to be private, it's to, be, to be direct. I think you could even argue that Jesus is calling us to a face-to-face conversation here. He says literally, go, as in get off your backside and go to them. I mean, how many times have you been, uh, you know, texting, emailing uh, someone, maybe about something a little bit difficult, a little bit sensitive, and there's a misunderstanding, and the whole thing blows up where context is lost, where, where tone is missed, where clarification can't be sought, where you can't read the person's body language and, and moderate what you're saying so they really understand what you're trying to get at. And our culture, we shy away from open and honest feedback, don't we? We shrink back from speaking clearly and directly to someone when they've done something wrong or when they've done something to hurt us. But that's not what Jesus is calling his people to. To, to actually shrink back and to not help one another out like this is not loving, Jesus is saying. You see, if there's something that threatens to break the fellowship or the unity of God's people, if there's, if there's something in, the, in someone's life that is uh, offensive to God, if there's, if there's something that we are doing as, uh, as, as a follower of Jesus but we're actually doing it and wandering away from being a follower of Jesus, Jesus says it's, it's worth taking the time. It's worth sucking up the awkwardness and it's worth going to them in love to talk about it face-to-face, directly and privately, as an expression of love. And the reason for this is because we're to make it as easy as possible, as easy as possible for them to make it right. You see, it's the opposite of megaphone diplomacy. It's not the open letter. It's not the email uh, with half the world CC'd in. It's not the passive-aggressive comment in front of other people. Jesus is envisaging a private, gentle, loving conversation Just between the two of you, he says. Keeping the temperature as low as possible so our brother or sister can be put right. So they can be put right privately. And if we're to be loving, then we also need to take care of the truth. That's the second step in the process. Uh, Verse 16. Have a look there with me. Verse 16. Verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. We need to take care with the truth. Now, you might be wondering, what does verse 16 have to say about the truth? It doesn't seem to even mention the word truth. Well, uh, that quote there in verse 16 is actually from the Old Testament. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 19. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, there was a safeguard. In uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, it's where God's law is, uh, is kind of spoken out by Moses. Uh, and, and in God's law, there's, uh, there's this safeguard that someone couldn't be condemned on the testimony of one witness alone. It must be established as, two, as true by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so what Jesus is saying is if we're going to do this, if we're going to bring a brother or sister back into line, we need to take care with the facts. We need to make sure it's checked. We need to make certain that the grievance or the accusation that we have is true. There's no partiality, there's, there's no spin, there's no distortion. Wandering sheep aren't to be won back by speculation or hearsay or gossip. But we take care with the truth. The third step in the process is, is to be done Slowly. It's to be done slowly. It's not to be rushed through. There's no time pressure. Uh, I think one of the standout features of this of this section is is how slowly we get to the point where someone might be excluded from the church. First, there's the individual, the one-to-one, the face-to-face, and then if they don't respond, then there's a few witnesses, and we try again to win them over. And if then after that they're still hard hearted Then there's the church gathered as a whole. And then and only then, when a brother or sister refuses after appeal, after appeal, after appeal, only then, only then are they they to be excluded. You see, what's on view here, by the time that someone is being excluded, there is persistent, deliberate, headstrong refusal to repent. And only when you get to that point, then they ought to be excluded. But until then... The pace is deliberately slow. Really slow out of love. Out of love so that things are not rushed. So there might be time for them to realize the error of their ways and turn back and be saved. The fourth thing is, uh, and here is another safeguard uh, this is not to be done alone, it is to be done with the church. Dealing with sin is to be done with the church. Verse 17. Verse 17, if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. That is, involve the body of God's people. There's not to be kind of any extrajudicial sentencing. Uh, no one acts as a law unto themselves. No one, no single person here is to be judged, jury and executioner. Dealing with sin is to be done within the community of God's people. It might involve or engage like the official leadership of a church, but it's something that's done and owned corporately. The church owns the decision together. See, to Jesus here—he's not kind of giving pastors a club in order to, to whack the flock with, uh, to get them into line. And sadly, this is how this passage has been used and abused in many ways by people in leadership. People have used this passage to assert their power or dominance over people or to suppress dissent or to make sure that people do things a particular way to please the pastor. Tragically, this passage has even been used to inflict abuse or cover up abuse. But none of that is justifiable from what Jesus is saying here. This is something that we own together as a church, not one person wielding it over the church. You see, the first thing is to be dealt with privately and directly. Probably not even involving the leadership of a church. Care is to be taken with the truth. It's to be done slowly. It's something that involves the whole church, not exercised by a special few. But every step of the way, the aim is clear. The aim is to win the person over. The aim is not to punish them or to vindicate them or to prove a point. The sole aim of this process is to win a brother or sister over, to bring them back, to bring the wandering sheep back into the fold so they do not perish. Have a look in verse 15 again. Verse 15, if they listen to you, You have won them over. That's what we're trying to do. You're trying to win them over, to bring them back. And that could be said after every step of the process. Verse 16, but if they will not listen to you, take one or two others along so that they might be won over. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church so that they might be won over, so that they might come back. This is the process here of how to bring back a stray sheep. This is how to coax them back into the fold, to stop them from wandering away where they wander themselves out of the kingdom of heaven. Again, it's not to be proved right. It's not to be vindicated. It's not to settle a score or let off some steam. The aim isn't to put them in their place or to make a public spectacle of the thing that they've done. The aim here is that the brother or sister for whom Christ died, that they're brought back, that they are gained, that they're restored back Among the flock. And this whole process of discipline that Jesus talks about here is to act as a warning, as an alarm that something is wrong and that they need to change before it's too late. Uh, In my little car, it's got a, a little warning beep when you begin to drift out of the lane. Um, I know it's got some special little cameras that can tell where the lane is and can tell when you're moving out of the lane. Uh, And so, you know, you're driving along and maybe you're a little bit distracted, maybe the kids are distracting me in the back seat or I'm changing the radio or whatever, and I'm not paying close enough attention and I I drift and it goes beep, 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 and then it's a tug at the steering wheel telling me to get back in the lane. The car's kind of telling me, you're wandering. You're about to leave the lane. You actually could be in danger, And so the the, the beep, beep, beep goes off. And so I I, I correct course and I pay more attention and I've avoided the danger and I've avoided it because I was warned. And that's what's going on here. A church that loves one another will take sin seriously and will give each other a little beep, beep, beep a tug back when we see them drifting away. And we'll do it to keep them from danger. We'll do it to keep them from being lost. But Jesus says if the drift continues and if time and time again they refuse to repent then the time will come where they're to be excluded says Jesus. They're excluded but they're also loved. Have a look there in verse 17. Verse 17 if they refuse to listen if they still refuse to listen tell it to the church and if they refuse to listen even to the church treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, to be honest, uh, at first reading, you might be like, yep, I can see the exclusion there, Um, but where's the love? Where's this love that you're talking about? Well, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? How did he treat them? Well, he was their friend. It's actually one of the things that the religious people hated about Jesus. Back in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel, people wrote Jesus off because he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners he ate with them he spent time with them he called them to be his followers even Matthew who wrote this gospel do you know what he did before he wrote a gospel before he met Jesus he was a tax collector even though someone is excluded from the fellowship even though they might be treated as no longer a follower of Jesus they're still to be loved They're still to be befriended. Jesus still wants to win them back, and so should we. There's no shunning. There's no uh, process of uh, someone being left out in the cold. They may be excluded for a time, There may be a time where we can't share the Lord's Supper together. There may be a time where they're stepping down from leadership or they're pulled off from serving. There may even be a time where they need to spend uh, a a, a period of time away from the fellowship of Christians. But even though that happens, that exclusion is never final. it's, it's It's never final, this side of death. It's just a shot across the bow, a warning sign that if they remain in sin, they'll be lost. And it's done in love It's done in love with the hope to win them back. You see, dealing with sin in the church is an expression of love. Of love for a brother or sister so they are not lost. As you've looked at this process, I hope you realise that it's it's, it's a process that at every stage has strong brakes and a weak accelerator. It's got strong brakes and a weak accelerator. And even after exclusion, even after someone has been put out of the church, there is ongoing love. You see, dealing with sin, taking sin seriously in the church, this sort of discipline is an expression of love. Uh, A church that really loves people will exercise discipline. A church that really loves people will exercise discipline. Uh, And we need to think this through from both sides. Uh, Sometimes you will be the one who needs to have the quiet word. Sometimes you will be the one who needs to point out the sin or the error and encourage your brother or sister to repent, to change their ways and to come back to Jesus. And sometimes you'll be the one who is gently taken aside as a brother or sister points out an area where you need to change, where you're wandering and brought back to Jesus. And whichever side we're on, we're to welcome the opportunity to take sin seriously. We're to welcome the opportunity to be brought back to, to, to stop a friend from wandering so they might be returned to the fold. Although discipline is not fun, uh, it's actually a sign of God's love for us. Now I've got three children. Um, if I didn't discipline them... Uh, well, No, actually, what happened, what's happened the other day was Finn, our youngest, uh, he got busted for doing something. He got busted for lying about something. And then we gave him a consequence and he's like, you don't love me. It's like, buddy, it's because I do love you. It's because I do love you that I need to discipline you. I need to show you that this is wrong and teach you what is right. See, this is not fun but it's a sign of God's love for us and it should be a sign for our love for each other. It's a sign of God's love for us because he doesn't want to lose us. He doesn't want us to wander off uh, in Proverbs chapter 3, uh, it says this. It says, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. See, The Lord's discipline is love for us. It's also a sign that we're one of God's children when we experience his discipline. Imagine you're driving a car, it's my like, fourth car illustration. I'm really not into the, you probably think I'm a car nut, I'm not at all. Um, uh, imagine you're driving your car and you're driving down a road towards a bridge that's been washed away. Not so hard to imagine today but um, imagine you're heading that way and imagine I have the opportunity to warn you. I could, I could blockade the road, I could put up signs, I could scream and shout and get your attention. There is danger ahead. Turn around. Go back. Imagine I could do that but I didn't. I just sat on the side of the road with my arms folded and went, "Well, it's their life, it's their choice. I don't want to be so unloving to kind of interrupt what they're doing and tell them to do something my way or a different way. I should just let them be them, you do you." And I just never said anything, and I watched you drive by, and I let the whole thing happen before my very eyes. We wouldn't call that love, would we? We'd call that neglect. If we love people, if we love one another, we will take sin seriously. We'll do everything that we can to stop each other from wandering off, to bring each other back so that no one is lost. Now that's the procedure. That's how it's to be done. Uh, second, we've got the, the sobering and the theological reason, the, the, the reason that Jesus gives us why this is possible, why we should do this, the grounds upon which this stands. Uh, this is the theology that underpins it, is because uh, as the church deals with sin, it reflects God's discipline. As we as the church deal with sin, it reflects God's discipline. That's to say, when the church deals with sin properly, it's actually God's discipline being enacted before us. A real intangible expression of God's love for us, um, but also of God's judgment for those who refuse him and turn their back on him. Have a look at verses 18 to 20. Uh, Verse 18 to 20, uh, Truly I tell you, which is Jesus saying, hey, this is really important. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, and this is really important, uh, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. Uh, Now these are sobering words, um, and I'm sorry to kind uh, kind of... pop your balloon but you know the, the wherever two or three are gathered in my name we usually use that as kind of like a, you know, a fun kind of comforting thought hey we're getting together and we're gathered and we're, we love Jesus and so Jesus is here with us hooray like that's not what it's talking about and you know some people go whatever two of you ask for in my name will be done for them like so Jesus is like our heavenly kind of vending machine we just got to agree and we've got to petition him and we'll get what we want that's, that's not what's going on here when we read this verse in its context it's actually serious and sobering what Jesus is saying here is that the local church it has the right and it has the authority to exclude one of their number in love, to exclude them from the church in the hope that they'll see the seriousness of their sin and they'll repent and return. That's what Jesus is saying here. And the exclusion, that binding and loosing, that agree on earth and are being done in heaven. What Jesus is saying is he's saying that when discipline is done rightly in his church, it's a reflection of what God is doing in heaven. And so if I persist in my sin, if by my actions I walk away from God and walk away from his people and if by by my actions as I'm I'm called to come back and I continue to refuse to come back and I refuse to change, then if the door is shut by the church, that's that's an outward sign that my behaviour has placed me outside of God's kingdom and that God will shut the door of heaven for me. But it's also saying when I repent and the church opens the door and welcomes me back that door being loosed and I can come back in then I'm being welcomed back into God's eternal kingdom and so the church has this solemn responsibility to take sin seriously to enact on earth God's heavenly discipline and the harshest and the most severe outcome is that we might be excluded from God's church that we might be removed from his fellowship. And it's it's that that, that the harshest and the most severe outcome is put before us so that none of us ever want to go there. So that when someone comes and talks to us about sin in our life, that we're willing to listen and repent. So that we will take sin seriously in our own lives and in the lives of others so that no one would be lost. But I wonder how that sounds to you in terms of a warning or a threat um, that you'd be removed from the church. Would, 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 would the, that possibility be enough to alter your behaviour? Uh, what most people do these days is if you know, things get a little bit uncomfortable at church, maybe the, a friend at a church tells them, how hey, you've got to cut that out and they're like, oh, I don't want to, and then things get awkward and they just go find another church. Just move on. Uh, in 1998, and most of you were not alive then. Um, but in 1998, I was um, I was kicked out of the library. Um, it was a school day. I had a free period. I was no class, um, and I was spending it in the library. And my friends and I we were supposed to be quietly working, uh, but instead there was a, there was a cricket game going on, and we were up in the corner of the library listening along on the radio in our headphones. Uh, And this game, it was a good game, it was a cracking game. It went down to the wire. Uh, The team that we were going for needed a boundary to win off the last ball and we were listening intently and and quietly and they did it. And and, and when when they hit the boundary off the last ball, the kind of quiet solitude of the library was shattered by the cheering and hollering of a handful of teenage boys uh, in the library. Once the celebrations died down, we were marched out of the library by uh, the librarian, Mrs Watson, and she told us very sternly that we weren't allowed to come back in. We were actually banned from the library for the rest of the term. But you know what? We really didn't care. As a punishment, it had no sting at all. It had absolutely no traction. I, I couldn't care less whether I was banned from the school library. Um, being banned, as a teenage boy, being banned from the school library felt like the, you know, the proverbial slap over the wrist with a wet bus ticket. It just had no traction whatsoever but this week I've been thinking about that day and wondering what consequence would get my attention what would be enough to deter me from wandering away from refusing to deal with sin well for Jesus there can be no greater deterrent than being removed from the church now although that might not make you tremble in your boots Jesus warns us that to be properly excluded from the church well it's a sign that we'll be excluded from him in his heavenly kingdom. And Jesus loves us too much to sit idly by and just let that happen. And the question for us has to be, do we love each other enough? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to make sure that doesn't happen to them as well? Do we love each other enough to take sin seriously, to to warn wandering sheep to come back into the fold so they may not perish? Do we love each other enough to step in so they might be brought back and won't be lost? Do you love people enough for that? Jesus certainly does. So let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sobering truths of your word. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you might fill us with a deep love for you and for each other. And Lord, help us to love each other enough to be willing to say difficult things so that no one wanders away. And Lord, help us to be a church that is willing to love each other enough to, to, to put into practice this Discipline, so that no one perishes. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.